Welcome to the Felix Phaedrus Podcast. Please enjoy our 10th episode entitled God and the Origins of Desire. Today we'll be discussing the uninventable origins of desire as found in the Trinity and what they mean for us, as well as the origins and purpose of unhealthy desires. This is the Felix Phaedrus Podcast. We're going to do a quick recap of the last episode. So last time we talked about the quote of Sartre saying, so long as there is a God, I cannot be free. And we talked about Nietzsche's Ubermensch and how these these ideas of the Ubermensch and this quote from Sartre about how man needs to invent his own essence, to be self-made and to choose what kind of being he is, that these things ultimately stand upon a mistaken belief that one can in fact create their own values. And we talked about why this is impossible and why desire is not something you can choose to have, either as a thing or as a specific desire. Like, you can't choose to have desires or no desires, like all or nothing. And um, among desires, you can't choose which ones to desire. And then we talked about how these desires ultimately originate in God and are things that are uninventable. Even God cannot create his own desire to desire things. So now we're going to transition to the new stuff. And that is to delve into the question of what is desire like for God? Like what is the origin of desire with God? Now, this is a pretty abstract question. Um, and I'm not going to go into full detail here. Um, if you are interested, I'll have written stuff on this eventually. Um, and the way that we approach this question has to do with the Trinity. So as we know, there's three persons in the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in order to look at desires at the most fundamental level, we have to realize that desires are ultimately a love of something. Um, now, there are sort of negative desires, which the satanic psychology loves, and those are the desire not to be bothered and the desire to not have to care and stuff like that. But those we'll talk about some other time, <laughs> probably. But when we're talking about desires in this positive sense, they're always love-oriented in the sense that love is the principle behind it. There is something that you want in a positive way, right? There's something else and you want that, be it peace, fulfillment, a family, a relationship, a thing, um, some really good food that you're craving or something like that, right? So all of these are desires that are loves of something or someone. Now, within God, we had that thesis, right, from the early episodes that God is love. This is what John tells us in 1 John chapter 4. So if we're going to understand the origins of desire all the way at the beginning in God, 
we have to understand it through the essence of God, right? God is love. If we're talking about does man invent his own essence or does he receive it, right? If we receive ours from God because we're made in the image and likeness of God, that we are persons like God and persons are made for love, as we talked about in episode five, then in order to understand this question, we have to look at the sort of primordial origins and structure of love within the Trinity. So that's what we'll be doing. In the Trinity, there's the procession where there's God the Father who begets God the Son, and by the love of the two, through the Son, the Father and the Son um, breathe the Holy Spirit. There's a fancy technical term, which is spirate, but it's just the Latin for to breathe. So it's it's we don't really have a good analog for what that verb should be, but that's the one we're going to use. Um, so from the love of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is breathed into being in some sense. But a lot of attention is put over how the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. There's a lot of disputes in that in theology, um, especially between the East and the West, but we'll not get into that. But not as much attention is paid to the Father begetting the Son, because everyone kind of agrees on that. But there's something very interesting here that we can learn from, and that is that before the Father begets the Son, not, not in a temporal sense, as if you know God was alone at the beginning of time looking at a stopwatch or something like that and being like, hmm, when should I do something? Maybe in 10 seconds. <laughs> it's not like that. There's a kind of logical time where there's a sequence of events. First, there is Father. Then there is Son. Then there is Holy Spirit. Right? It has to do with the order of procession. Well, we may ask the question, if, if we view things in this way, we can ask the question, why did God beget God the Father beget the Son? And if you look at the sort of like historical view of what love is in the Christian tradition, there's this idea that, um, which applies in virtually all cases, that love is a response to a value seen in some other thing. And so it's something like the heart finds something valuable and then it desires that thing in some way. It loves it. Um, but is that what we have in the first case of love, which is when the father begets the son? That is the primordial case of love out of all of them, right? It's before creation itself. What happens there? Well, if the son has not yet been begotten, what is the father to look upon and desire with love? The son's not there yet. What has to happen first is that the father desires to love. And that love in this most primordial moment, so to say, is a movement of the heart that seeks to give itself to something beyond it. And so if the son has yet to be begotten, God the Father can't look out into the black void, metaphorically speaking, and say, wow, I love that so much. I want to pour myself into it. It's rather a desire to love in an active way. And so there's this desire to give of himself and to 
pour out his being into something else to then love it. And so then God begets the son, not because he sees the son and is like, ah, I love him. (laughs) He wants to love. And so he begets the son. That has to be the first movement. And without that structure to how love works, where it's a, it's this desire from within to pour out. Without that structure, you can't account for anything in reality. God would never have made creation and God would never be three persons. This is part of the structure of love. It's part of the essence of love, that it desires this outpouring. It's generous and self-giving. In fact, the term used in the New Testament um, for the greatest of the virtues in, uh, in Paul's epistle, was it Colossians 13? Correction, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. These are the three highest virtues. And when he says love there, the word used is caritas, from which we get the word charity. Now, our modern term for charity generally is seen as like giving of something, but the original meaning is giving of self to another. So caritas is the self-giving. Well, this is exactly what we find in this sort of primordial moment of divine love, where the father desires to pour himself out. So what does this mean for us? What it means is that our essence in reflecting God in the Trinity, we are made for love because that's what fulfills God. And if we're made in his image, it fulfills us. And that structure of love isn't to just find things and then fall in love with them. It's the desire to pour oneself out into another to then love them. That is the mode. It's, it's in the first step, generous. It wants to love and so moves out. It doesn't find something valuable and then say, oh, I'm going to choose to love this. No, that primordial desire within man is to love, even if he has not found a beloved. And that the, this last statement that I just said is so like down to earth when you think about it, because there are people who have never been in a romantic relationship who at some point will just desire to love someone else. They want to have someone else to love. It's not because they've experienced it before and then they think, oh yeah, that was pretty great. I'd like to have it again. That's not the case. There's a desire to belong to someone else and love them, right? And that happens even if there is no one that they're attracted to or desire to give themselves to. There's that yearning to be given to someone else. So going back to the satanic psychology, you might say, if you're Satan, hypothetically, (laughs) you might say, well, I don't want to give myself to anyone else. Why should I want to give myself to anyone else? Well, those are the words of the heart that has not found itself because it has not found that which it loves. It has yet to find itself in a beloved because that's sort of the thing that fulfills its its existence. 
And so when the heart is apathetic, it's because it doesn't see anything that it loves. And in some sense, it has stifled um, this first movement of love that desires to go out and find something to be given to. And so they might say, well, why should I desire to be fulfilled in the way that God made me, right? Like having a traditional family and having you some niños, children for those who don't speak Spanish, um, and, you know, having grandkids and raising your own family and doing things with them and enjoying life with them. Like, why wouldn't you want to spend your whole life in a cubicle? Why wouldn't you want to, like, go to a nursing home because you have no kids to take care of you? Like, <laughs> why would you want those things when you could have a loving family where you are totally fulfilled in ways that no other thing in the workplace or anything like that could ever bring? So if the person is either apathetic and doesn't desire to love, and they start to move in this direction that the satanic psychology leads to of the spite for things and a disdain for things, or if one um, tries to take on this Sartrean notion or this Nietzschean notion of inventing one's own values and inventing one's own essence, they might ask, why should I desire the things? Like, like why should I follow God's directions for fulfillment? I didn't choose that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you didn't. But it's part of your essence. So you should follow it anyways, because that is what is actually going to fill, fulfill you. Those other things won't. And like we talked about with the junk food example last time, right? Where the kids just want candy and junk food and whatnot. That's not going to fulfill them. It's not going to make them healthy. They're not going to grow properly. They're not going to develop as they're supposed to. And it's going to lead to deficiencies. In the same way, if the person seeks out modes of fulfillment that they've chosen by having a career at the expense of everything else or what have you, or, you know, spending their whole life chasing fame or money or pleasure or whatever like that, it's not going to fulfill them. And so first off on a practical note, you shouldn't be upset that there is a way to actually be fulfilled. And secondly, you shouldn't be bitter that someone has told you how to do it. Like, have a traditional family and have kids and like spend your life serving your family and your community. Like the fact that someone has told you the recipe for fulfillment should make you thankful. But again, if you don't like it, you're going to, you're going to be resentful towards it. You're going to be like, well, I don't want to play that game. I don't like those rules. I don't like that winning condition. Right. And so my, my question to someone with that attitude would be, why should you be upset that your fulfillment is what God has chosen for you according to your, your essence, right? As made in the image and likeness of God. Why should you be bitter that you did not choose how it is that you're fulfilled when the way in which you are fulfilled is the way God himself is fulfilled? He has given you in essence, which is fulfilled in the same way he is. He is not holding back something from you for himself. He's not trying to stifle you so that you can't be fulfilled or have fun or something like that. He is sharing with you the same means of fulfillment that is his own. 
That is divine fulfillment. That is a divine gift. There's literally nothing better. So this this sort of idea of being bitter about it and saying, well, I didn't get to choose it and I don't like these rules. That is an attitude of someone who does not yet see with their heart. It's not yet properly formed to see the world with the values that it ought to see them with. And that's what we'll talk about in the next episode. Any questions? Um, yeah. So uh, you were saying at the end, well, I, okay, right. So we have this desire based on, uh, we have this desire based on God's essence. And how, how does that, how does that correspond with the uh, negative desires we have? Or like, why do we long for other things that are not part of that divine desire? And why are those other passions, you could say, are stronger and oftentimes at least initially stronger than, say, the divine desire? Part of the reason – so I, I don't know if I have a complete answer for that question, but I think a definite – a definite reason behind it, if only one among many, is that God wants us to participate in our own, um, what do you call it? He wants us to participate in our own maturation as a person. And so uh, part of that is the freedom to follow this path of fulfillment or to avoid it and try and blaze our own trail. And if we do that, even if we take this sort of failing route, we can still learn from it and realize, no, we should have taken that other one. We should have followed the advice of all the people before us. Um, and so um, the other thing, though, is that. So if, it basically stems from free will. Yeah, yeah. A big part of it's free will. Now, there's another thing, which is integrally tied into the, the free will answer or response. And that is that um, when someone cultivates a virtue, either by following someone's direction of, Hey, this is going to be fulfilling, or this is good for you. Um, or by realizing, Hey, this other thing is destroying me. Like say it's gluttony or an addiction or something like that. This thing is destroying me. I need to avoid it. And then they start building the temperance that they need to have um, and things like that. If you build those virtues, you come to own them because you have been responsible in their cultivation. It's not something someone just dumped in your lap. You have come to own it by working for it every step of the way and preserving it every step of the way. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this in a past episode, but in the same way that you don't really own an invention unless you like made the whole thing from scratch um, or, you know, conceived of the whole thing. And in the same way that you are not a parent unless you actually raise the children born to you. Um, the person does not actually own themselves and their virtues and their character unless they have had a part in cultivating and maintaining that. Stewardship is what creates genuine ownership. And part of that is because if you can be entrusted 
as a steward of something, then you can be entrusted to keep it long-term as an owner, right? It, like, if I can trust you to take care of a house in my absence, then I can entrust you to keep that house even if I plan to leave and never come back. I can trust that house is not going to be destroyed. And it's in that that responsibility that one achieves a genuine ownership of the thing. Because it, it indicates that you can retain it, right? Without it collapsing or catching fire or being destroyed by your own ineptitude. And so that's another reason why man needs to have desires not his own so that he can come to tame them and control them or harness them to be a steward of them, using them for good, quelling the things that aren't, and really come to own himself in his own freedom. One becomes more free when they exercise virtue than when they exercise vice. Because as we talked about before with like addictions or the kids wanting candy or something like that, that desire, if, 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 you don't, if you don't have the virtue to control one of your desires, then that desire is controlling you. And at that point, you're not being free by giving in. You're being overpowered. That is not genuine freedom. That is being hijacked by someone other than yourself or something other than yourself or something in yourself, be it another person or a physiological desire or something like that. And that's why like addictions and vices aren't genuine freedom. You are relinquishing self-control to that impulse within you, which is self-destructive. That's not going to fulfill you. It's going to destroy you. So that's part of why um, I think those are two very important reasons behind why God created us with desires that are not healthy for us to pursue. And like children, you know, when you touch hot stove or if you touch a cactus, if you have those where you live or something like that, you learn things as you go. That doesn't end when you're a kid, right? That applies to personal character. So... So you think um, you see so you think those desires those other desires are like God created us with those other desires or that they came about with the fall. Ah, okay. So I've done a lot of work on this topic and I do plan on pu publishing that stuff at some point. It'll be out at some point, but um, I've done a bunch of work on the fall. And one of the things that I realized is that if you look at the explicit details of the text, um, the, the picture that emerges is not that the world was absolutely perfect and dandy and like, you know, a paradise, <laughs> um, which is actually the original word for the garden. It's from like the old Persian paradisos or something. Um, which means like a walled garden um, with four rivers in it, which is one of the things mentioned about Eden and stuff like that. Um, sorry, the Garden of Eden. Um, yeah, what I found instead is that like a lot of the challenges and difficulties that man is going to encounter were actually part of what creation was made to be like in the beginning. So that's not to say that there wouldn't have been any suffering or sorry, it's not to say that all suffering is the result of the fall or that none of the suffering is the result of the fall. Some of it is the result of the fall, but even if that hadn't happened, there still would be suffering. God created these things, even though they're negative, 
or bad as a gift that requires stewardship. Because like, like think of if someone gives you a knife, right? Like you have to use that knife well, or else it's going to hurt you or someone else, right? You have to use it as a tool, use it properly, right? You grab by the handle, not by the blade, right? And use it how it's supposed to be used. And if you don't, it's going to hurt you. So the question is, if you give that knife to someone, like, are you trying to hurt them or is it a gift? Well, obviously it depends upon how they're going to use it. If they're not going to be a good steward, if they're not going to be responsible over it, if they're not going to be prudent in how they wield the gift, then yeah, it's going to hurt them. It's going to bite them. And so um, all of all of these uh, struggles that were given, be they internal desires or things from outside that we have to overcome or else be crushed by or hurt by. Um, these are genuine gifts from God. And to this, um, I refer to this as a stewardship of suffering, that whenever one is presented with a challenge, there is a way to use it in a positive way, to grow from it and to grow as a person to where you take that challenge and you grow from that challenge rather than having that challenge flatten you, like getting hit by a car. So I think that's something woven into the fabric of reality. And it's ultimately one of the principles behind which there is so much suffering in the world and why God allows it. And I would say why God intends a lot of it. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to have to end right there because I have to go to dinner. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us for the Felix Phaedrus podcast. I hope this has helped you in better understanding and appreciating the nature and origins of love, our God-given path to fulfillment, and the challenges God gives us. If this podcast has blessed you in some way and you'd like to give back, you can support my ministry with prayer, financial support, or by spreading the word. Everything helps. Don't forget to join us next time, where we'll be discussing the eyes of the heart and transformative experiences. Recording, content, and production by Michael Joshua. Additional recording by Judson. Today's epic track is From the Arrow Loop by Ronald Jenkins. Special thanks to Mother Mary and all my patrons. Shalom. Shalom.